care that way, and so we want to be able to minister and care for kids um, the best way we can. Um, I'm going to get my, um, my cup of tea, not because I think I'm that pretentious, but because um, my old friend Bronchitis visited this week. So um, as we continue our way through, we're in the book of Galatians, and we're jumping into part two of the book of Galatians. If you want to turn there, we'll also have the, the text on the screen behind me. And just a second, and to set up where we're going this morning, it's, it's a little difficult to preach for a number of reasons, um, the book of Galatians, because Paul is going to get to some pretty powerful things, but he's not there yet. And so part of my task as a preacher is to somewhat tee it up for you, knowing what's going to come without getting too far ahead of myself or too far ahead of the Apostle Paul. And so what I hope to convince you of um, this morning is kind of two main things. One, um, the job of the Christian is to cultivate, to think on, to reflect on, to protect the truth of the gospel, not just when you first come to faith, but as an active part of your Christian living. There are some people who think that the gospel is the, the ABCs of Christian living. It's really the A through Zs of Christian living. It's not the door that you enter into salvation. It's really the door in all the house where you live. And so the gospel isn't just for people who are not yet Christians or people who are considering the faith. It is something that we have to reflect on constantly. And um, I, I try to... I, In my community group and other places, I try to call shenanigans whenever people start to use Christian lingo. And so I'm going to try and be as specific as possible to to show you how you reflect on the gospel or you stay near to Jesus. For some people, they hear that. I have no idea how to do that. And so I want you to think about this morning. What What are the gospel sources in your life? If you count up the, the times during the week that you hear about Jesus or you reflect on what he's done, or what it means for you to to be a Christian, how does that happen? Do you just, do you have times of prayer? Do you read the Bible? Is it certain devotionals that you use? Is there audio you listen to? You listen to sermons? Do you have Christian friends that you're with? Are you part of a community group? Um, Do you have things in your Facebook feed? Or what what, what are the inputs of gospel for you um, during the week? So that's, that's the first question. The second one, and more serious, is that it's very easy for the true gospel to become a false gospel and us not recognize it. And so the church at Galatia had heard the gospel, had received the true gospel about Jesus from the Apostle Paul and some of his friends in ministry, and then they had started to accept a false gospel. But the Galatians didn't say, okay, that's Paul's true gospel. Well, this week we've decided that we would like to believe a false gospel. This is something entirely different. We've decided the Apostle Paul is absolutely wrong, and we're going to believe this instead. That didn't happen. They didn't see any change in themselves. They just suddenly lapsed into believing a false gospel. The people who had come in to preach this false gospel to them didn't come in and say, okay, you heard about Jesus, we're now going to undermine Jesus and preach a different gospel to you. They simply came in and say, we have a little tweak. We'd like to make a little alteration. Paul was good, but he didn't go far enough. And so we want to add to this Christian gospel that you've heard to make it better. 
That's a very subtle thing, and it happens a lot within our culture, within evangelicalism, and there's even that drift in our church and in our own hearts and in my heart. And that's why the book of Galatians is so powerful, because Paul is trying to yell at you, um, probably pretty literally, he's pretty angry in this passage, to try and jostle you, to try and shake you awake so that you will be on the alert to the ways that you might be tempted to believe a false gospel. So, those are the two things that I, I hope you'll do. How do, you, how do you cultivate gospel living? Where are the people you hear the gospel from, the resources? Um, second is, how do you make sure that those are pure and not polluted? How are you going to make sure that you can discern what is the true gospel and the false gospel? And so, we're going to work through that. Um, this morning this section. Remind you, this is Paul's first letter, we think. Um, you've now hit into the odd part of Paul's letters. If you go and look at some of the other letters, what you're expecting by verse 6 is either a thanksgiving or a blessing. Paul will typically introduce himself. He'll say something about the, the folks he's writing to. Then he'll say something like, I thank God that you've grown in the faith and the gospel has borne such fruit in you. Or he'll say something, a blessing. He'll say, and I bless the Lord God for his work in the midst of you. Um, Paul leaves both of those out. Um, is, is neither thanking nor blessing. He's now into fussing mode. Um, and so he's, he's very angry. And so maybe you have a, choi- a few choice words that you use for when you're angry, like really angry, not I'm a little bit upset. But when you're really, really frustrated, um, that's where Paul is as we go into verse 6 of chapter 1 of the book of Galatians. So I'll read to you now verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of our God from the book of Galatians. Why don't we pray for a minute? Um, and before we consider it. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you, through your Holy Spirit, working through your word, um, would help each of us to root out the ways that we are tempted to believe a different gospel, that we would maybe see some of the sources that that comes from. We would want to see you clearly, your love for us, Jesus, how prized and awesome he is, and so we are going to need your help. Would you come this morning and help us as a congregation? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we launch into this passage, we're just going to work our way through. I really just want you to see four things in um, in this passage before we make some concluding remarks. And the first thing that I want you to see, and Paul starts into it as he says, I'm so shocked that that you've departed from the gospel, that these Galatians are actually deserting Christ by believing a false gospel. I wonder if I were to ask you now and ask you the question, what would happen in a person's life for them to desert God? If we were to have a person up here, you know, Benny, and we were to say, okay, Benny has walked away from Jesus, what would be the things that we would draw out and and talk about that were going on in his life that would lead us to that conclusion? 
I think probably what we would be prone to say is that there have been some specific sins that have happened in his life that we now deduce that he's walking away from the Lord, which isn't a bad thought, but it's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Paul is drawing back to us and putting it before us that to stay near to Jesus, to be near him, isn't fundamentally a question about morality or sin management. To be near Jesus is to believe his gospel. And to desert Jesus, to walk away from God, is to disbelieve the gospel. And so by disbelieving and starting to agree with a false gospel, Paul is saying these Galatians are actually deserting Christ, the one who had called them in grace. Later on in this book, Paul will use the phrase, fallen from grace. And it's a word, a phrase that actually has made its way into to secular literature. And you might have people say, you know, once they, they consider themselves kind of right and upstanding, and then later on in their life, they look at themselves and they consider themselves somewhat as a, a wayward person. And they'll use the phrase, well, I've just fallen from grace. Or that person has fallen from grace. And what they usually mean by that is that that person has done things in their life that have made them more immoral and therefore they are no longer near the Lord. Now, nowhere does the Bible advocate sin or say that you should try to sin. When we're talking about being near to the Lord, we're talking about believing the gospel. Cultivating a knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, not primarily looking over our actions, weighing them in a balance and deciding at the end of the day by whoever's standard that I'm doing a good job or a bad job, I'm near to the Lord or I'm far away from the Lord, I am with him or I've fallen away from grace. What you'll see, falling away from grace is actually what happens when we refuse to repent. Not when we somehow have gotten Um, sin no longer under control. There's a big difference there. And you see the Apostle Paul lay it out here. It may seem simple to you, but I wanted to give a little bit of a reboot for you as you think about your own life. Do you think about spiritual maturity and spiritual health primarily in terms of believing that Jesus has died for your sins and what he has done for you Or have you unwittingly reduced it down to a set of behaviors that you just check up on during the week? Have you reduced spiritual health to how you feel about yourself or how God feels about you and your ability to believe that? It's a very subtle slide, but it's very, very important. And so what the Apostle Paul is so angry about with the Galatians is they've begun to believe that the gospel is fundamentally something that they can do, or at least that they got in by Jesus and now they can start adding to it themselves by their own works. And that isn't just a, oh, we have a little problem going on here, let me help you. That is a fundamental error, a huge problem that they've actually deserted Jesus, their Savior, by saying that there is something other than his work that satisfies God on their behalf. And you'll see that flesh its way out. But if you don't get that, you're going to be confused by the rest of the book of Galatians. And so I wonder if we start out at this first thing, you can just in your mind, you think through the rest of the day, as I say sometimes, if you're going to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 on how near you are to Jesus, 
what would be your standard? Would it be looking through actions past week, what you know, you could do the catechism, you actually showed up on Sunday morning? Or would it be what Paul's about to say? That you believe the good news of what God has done through Jesus in atoning for sin by dying on a cross and being raised again to new life and gifting that life to sinners who still remain undeserving of it. Two drastic ways, and by the end, I hope you'll see how that, um, that plays itself out in or practical life. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd like you to see, a false gospel is far more dangerous than false religion. A false gospel is far more dangerous than false religion. And let me tell you the difference between those two. False religion is anything other than Christianity. Um, It is the attempts at happiness Sometimes the attempts at systematizing that happiness of creating some kind of ideology, some kind of spiritualism, some way to pursue happiness in this life and a life beyond if the system believes in a life beyond. And we call that a false religion when it is not orthodox Christianity. So Islam, Buddhism, atheism, agnosticism, you know, ho-hum American spirituality, Whatever you want to put, we would put in the category of false religion, paganism. Wrong, absolutely wrong. We hope that if you are in a religion that is false, that you'll come to find salvation in Jesus and true religion. But Paul also has a category of false gospel. And false gospel is what happens when someone takes the lingo or even some of the truths of Christianity and tweak it. And change it just a little bit. And the interesting thing about Christianity is as soon as you change it a little bit, you've lost the whole thing. You can't dilute the gospel at all and still have the gospel. You have something else. Which is probably the problem that we have when we run into a place like Culpeper. And so I would assert to you that if you're not a Christian, or if you know people who are not Christians, some of them will say to me, I've considered Christianity, and I've decided that Christianity is is not for me. And for most of those people, they haven't considered Christianity. They not necessarily don't think they've been a part of a false religion. They just believe the false gospel. They've been somewhat vaccinated against the gospel. You know how a vaccine works. You give a a little dose of something in the hopes of warding off, um, getting it full-blown. A lot of folks have been given a little dose of Christianity And it's warded them off from getting the full-blown illness of being um, near to Jesus. And so a lot of people have actually rejected a false gospel and have thought that they've rejected true Christianity. And a false gospel is far more dangerous. And so I don't mind um, mind naming names and talking about it. I think some of the prevalent false gospels that are um, at work in our culture are things like um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I I pray against that little brick building every time I pass by it. Um, I hope that they will all meet Jesus. Um, Mormonism is a false gospel. Um, It's a tweak. Um, And Mormons will admit that to you. Um, Joseph Smith altered the gospel. He has added to it. Um, And when you add to it, you undermine the whole thing. And so um, I pray against those guys whenever they're going through our neighborhood. I had had another friend and 
Um, and his mom was great. And whenever the Mormons would come into their neighborhood, um, she would bring them into their house and she would ask all kinds of questions. She'd make lemonade and bring out cookies. And, and her job was to keep them in her house as long as possible so they couldn't get to any of the other neighbors. And so she would just, she, and, and so she would, and, and that, that's a false gospel. Um, and actually Mormons have made a change in probably the past 10 years, and maybe my time's off. They changed just before the Olympics at Salt Lake City. And so they used to say, we are different than Christianity. And now they're actually billing themselves as somewhat of a different denomination within Christianity. And so there's, there's packaging. It is it's strictly false. They do not believe in that, first of all, that Jesus is God, um, which is a problem for, um, for Orthodox Christianity. And um, they also don't believe in a salvation that's by grace. And so it is a false gospel. Um, another more elusive one, or things when we get into, I'll call it Joel Austinism. Um, and, and I want to say, as I, as I get into those categories, um, I, am, I am talking about the, the gospels that people preach and not where they are with the Lord. That's, that's up to the Lord and what he does. Um, and I can say that if somebody believes in Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, that there is not salvation in that system, when you get more into the evangelical pale, people can have a true faith with the Lord and preach a false gospel. And so it was, we believe, with the people in Galatia, we believe that these were legitimate Jewish Christians, that they had been saved and believed in the blood of Jesus for their salvation, but even though that they had believed in Christ truly for salvation, they were now preaching a false gospel. And so there are other things in our culture. So you might be able to say, well, no, I'm not going to do Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or any of that kind of stuff, but, you know, I'll listen that God's purpose in life is to make me great, and that I have all this untapped potential within me and that all God wants to do is just take this raw material that is Joe Holland and help me meet my potential. There's nothing about sin, overcoming sin. There's nothing about my need and lack. There's nothing really about God getting glory. It's just the universe revolves around me and I'm glad God has finally realized that. <laughs> and that is what is so, and you can imagine, I mean, I mean, my pride likes things being centered around me, and so somebody turns on the TV or turns on the radio and says, well, of course the world's all about me. I thought all along that that's what Christianity teaches. I'm just going to buy into that. So that's, that's an aspect of it. Um, sometimes it comes out in the ways that, that, that the practices that we advocate, and so um, I've actually seen a lot of people damaged by um, things like the Circle Maker, um, Batterson's book, and I know that, that Batterson preaches the gospel, he's up in D.C., but when you start to advocate that the way to have nearness with God or to call down God's blessing is by drawing circles around things, that is extra-biblical. That is adding to something, and it leads people down a wrong path. It leads people to circle-making rather than to Jesus, which is always my question. I want to see Jesus. When I pray, I want you to talk to me about Jesus, his prayer and his glory and how Psalm 63 ends in him. If you want to come to my house and you want to talk about a prophet, I don't want to hear about Joseph Smith. I want to hear about Jesus. He is the prophet, the one who preaches to me the word of God and intercedes on my behalf. I'm all about Jesus. And that's what the gospel is about. And so these things are very much at work in our culture. Some of them within the pale that we would say, yeah, that's Christianity and a little bit off. We believe that those people probably have a real valid relationship with the Lord, but they're teaching wrong things. And then there are things that fly under the radar, call themselves Christian, but are absolutely not. And so I want you to be discerning, and I want you to be gracious, and I want you to be humble. 
Because there are things that I'm wrong about too, and there are things that you're wrong about. A dear old friend who said, I may be wrong, but I'm not in doubt. And, um, and that's what I want for you when it comes to your Christianity. I want you to study the Word of God, and I want you to be sure about the Word of God, and I want you to go as far as the Word of God goes. I want you to be confident in the gospel, but I also want you to be humble in the way that you interact with other people. But I also want you to be able to have the same anger that the Apostle Paul has when people start to manipulate or change the gospel because it's a serious big deal, and it's a bigger deal than Islam or Buddhism because it allows someone to think that they've received the Lord Jesus Christ when really they've just received something else in the wrapping of Jesus Christ. And so I, I encourage you in that direction. You know, it's always, to some degree, I really don't because this sounds horrible, but to some degree I, I wish I could like somewhat filter what you read on the internet and the books. And it sounds crazy for a pastor to say, I'm not going to filter what you, what you read. But I'm often worried with how subtle it can be and as a pastor responsible for caring for your souls and making sure that I'm holding the gospel in front of you every week, I want to be able to warn you at the different pressures and pushes within our society away from Jesus towards a gospel of works rather than a gospel of faith in Christ. And so that's my pastoral plea. If you want to know how that works, I'll tell you, um, if you're thinking, how might this work in someone's life to run through a case study of how someone believes a false gospel, as Paul lays it out here in those first two verses, verses six and seven that they've diverted. Um, what happens first is that someone starts to think about, what's the, what's the cause of my right standing with God? And usually the false gospel starts to move away from God and towards themselves. So the cause is, there is something really good about me that deserves salvation. I just think in general that I'm a, I'm a deserving person. There's something intrinsic in, in who I am. And if salvation is going to be kind of dispersed out, I kind of think I, I should get it. And if you move from what that cause is to, to what maybe is the foundation of, of why you would actually think that, well, I think I do some good things. I mean, things that God mentions in his Bible. There, there are things that are said that are good and right. I mean, Ten Commandments. I mean, I might get 80%, 70% on a bad week. And I mean, I think, I think for the most part, if I were going to bring the things I've done, the things I've thought, the things I've stayed away from, even ways that I've said I'm sorry to people that, that I've maybe hurt, I, I think all in all, if I were to bring my works and thoughts and affections and my life, I think I'm going to be better than most. So I think the cause I'm deserving and... I think I kind of have this well, this resume of things that I'm, I'm, I'm counting on. Well, what is your entrance into that, that right standing with God? And most people will say, well, there was this moment in my life where I decided to become serious about religion. I really decided that I should be serious about Christianity. Something bad happened in my life, or I made it through college alive, or um, I hear this one a lot, I had my first child. Um, and just the fear of having a first child, just people think, well, I've now decided, me as a deserving person who's done some good things, I decided I'm going to get serious about Christianity and I'm going to start going to church. And I decided that I'm going to participate in the rituals and the things that I'm supposed to do as a good Christian person, whatever that church is. I've had some churches and they tell me I need to go to community groups, so I go to community groups. Other churches say that, that I shouldn't, I should work in soup kitchens, so I'll do soup kitchens. But, you know, I got serious about Christianity and, and I decided to continue in that and keep with that because that's what good Christian people do. 
And then what's the culmination? The culmination is one day I hope to be able to stand before God and say, I've been a good Christian person, and I think that you need me on your team. I think good Christian people make it into heaven, and at least that's what I've been taught for so long. And so on the day I die, I'm going to go to where all the other good Christian people are. Now, there's a little bit of, of hyperbole and sarcasm in that little story, but I would present to you that some percentage, and you can maybe take guesses of what that would be, of folks in Culpeper actually think that is the Christian gospel. But if I were to take the hyperbole and sarcasm out, they'd say, yes, that's why I'm a Christian. And what you see as you work your way through it, it is fundamentally self-centered and not God-centered or Christ-centered. God did not come to unlock your potential. God came to make his son great. He did not come to take the raw materials of who you are and build it into this great building. He came to make you a trophy of grace, a recognition of what he accomplished in your salvation. And so we work our way back through what the true Christian gospel is, is going back and saying, well, what is the cause of my salvation? It is that our God in space and time is fundamentally and unnervingly merciful. That he looked forward in time and he decided apart from anything that he saw, anything that would happen, anything in you, anything outside of you, that his character of mercy needed to be expressed in saving people that did not deserve salvation. What is the foundation of that kind of salvation? It is the completed and finished work of the Lord Jesus who fulfilled the law in full, who died on the cross for people who did not, bearing their punishment, allowed himself to experience truly death and so die, but then show that he had power over death by triumphing out of the grave, being raised to new life, sitting down at his father's right hand as the exalted king who is truly ruling and reigning right now. And part of that ruling and reigning is overcoming sin and death in your life and bringing salvation to you so that he is the one who gets glory. Understand, salvation in the Christian model, is 100% about works. Jesus' works. 100% you are saved by works. Works of the law. You are saved by Jesus' works of the law. And so the foundation of our salvation is what he said, well, how do you get into such a good thing? What is my entry? Do I get serious about Christianity? No. We were all spiritual idiots walking the other way. And God in space and time harasses us, apprehends us, wrestles us to the ground, and causes us to be born again. So that in real time we believe the gospel and repent of our sins because God has wrought salvation in our life. And the reason we continue in that salvation is because God keeps us and protects us and we're constantly trying to run away, and he grabs us and pulls us back and woos us and wins us to himself. It's how we come in and how we stay in. God's power to keep and protect and renew his own people. Well, what's the goal of it in the end? Is it so I would be able to appear before God's throne and say, I'm a good Christian person? The goal in the end is that God would get glory. 
is that we would stand there not as a mass of people on that day and all of us compete for which of us is the best Christian person, but that we would all with one voice say, look what he has done. Look in his mercy and grace what he's accomplished. I want to lay out my weaknesses and my failures and my sins, my lack of capacity, my lack of raw material, my lack of potential, and that God decided to have mercy on me And so glorify himself as the God who has mercy and grace, who is the just and the justifier. Those are two very different gospels. One is focused on me and a little bit of what God does to help me along. Almost like God is my my trainer, my spiritual trainer. I go into the gym. He kind of helps me become the person I want to be. The other is it is all about God. And I exist and he made me to exalt him and his glory. And I actually find myself most fulfilled, most happy, most free, not when I think I have become someone great, but when I can advocate for his greatness. Two very different gospels. Very different gospels. And yet both of them are sold in our culture under the name of Christianity. And what you'll see as we work our way through the book of Galatians is the Apostle Paul is saying, beware, be careful. If you think that you are insusceptible, that you are impervious to believing a false gospel, you out of everyone else here are most susceptible to it. The most dangerous thing that you could do as a Christian is think, I've got this gospel thing down, smooth sailing until Jesus comes to take me or he returns to get me. And so that's what we're trying to do as we labor into this, as we labor into this book to try and figure out and look into our own hearts and our own church and figure out what are the ways that we might be prone um, to forget and to start trying to earn it. What are the ways that I want to be great? What are the ways that I want to make God great in his gospel? So that's the second thing. The the third thing is that the truthfulness of the gospel, its veracity and its value is intrinsic to the gospel itself and not who preaches it. Let me say that again. The truthfulness and the power and the value of the gospel is in the truth of the gospel itself and not in who preaches it. Celebrity and status have nothing to do with the power of the gospel. Nothing at all. Um, I, I don't wear a, a robe up here. I used to wear a robe in, um, in worship. Um, when I was in Jackson, Mississippi, big black robe. My kids would hide under it. Um, we'd, it, was, it was so fancy in that church. I even had to wear a white um, shirt underneath and not a blue shirt. She just couldn't do that. Um, I couldn't wear a bow tie. I had to wear a straight tie. Um, and so it was, it was very traditional and um, just organs and red carpet and old wooden pews and, and all of that. Some of your heartstrings are like, oh, I would love to be back to those things. Um, but I used to wear a robe. Um, today, when people see a robe, um, what they think is, uh, or some people think is, that that is saying something about that person's status before God, that they are a religious professional and that they are nearer to God to someone else. When in actuality, the reason the Puritans started to wear robes is because they wanted to try and black out the preacher. They ran to the question and said, well, should I wear 
jeans and a black t-shirt and a, a, a tan blazer? Or, you know, what, what does that communicate about me? Or should I wear what a banker wears? What does that communicate about me? Or, or maybe I should wear the clothes of, of the, the poorest in our culture. And well, maybe I, I well, what do, should I wear that? And they say, well, why, how about we do this? We're just going to black the man out. We're just going to find some black material and we're just going to cover the guy with it. Um, so that is the gospel that you hear and not any of his status or celebrity. That's the heart of this when the Apostle Paul says, listen, even if I come back to you and preach a false gospel, with my status for you and how I've bled for you, don't believe it. If an angel appears to you, if Gabriel himself comes as a shining warrior of light, and he says, by the way, little change, altering things, and he tries to add to the gospel, don't believe him. Don't look at the status or the education or the degree or the wealth or the lack thereof of the person who preaches the gospel. Look to the gospel itself. It is that important and it is that precious and it is one of the things that has kept the gospel preserved to you, for you, to this day. I hope one day if I stop preaching the gospel that I will open up my Bible one morning and there'll just be a pink slip there. God will just be like, you're fired. You're, you're done. And if I walk out into the parking lot of Culpeper Christian School and a bus comes through and hits me and I'm done and I get to go meet Jesus this afternoon, the gospel in no way is impaired. It will continue on to be preached and true because it is in the word of God and it is true in the word of God. And I need you. I need you as a congregation to take ownership over that. Let me say again. I need you to be personally responsible for protecting the gospel for yourself. Do not believe me because I am Joe. Check me according to the word of God. Do not believe someone because they write a great mommy blog. Do not believe someone because they're your parents or your grandparents. Do not believe someone because their book has a lot of um, nice endorsements on the front. Know what the gospel is and believe the gospel alone rather than taking people's words for it. And I need you individually to own that. I don't mind carrying some of the theological weight for you and some of the more complex things, which is part of my job. I'm your resident theologian and missiologist. You want to talk about superlapsarianism versus predestination versus whatever. You want to talk about perichoretic union. Like, I'm fine carrying those things. Um, some of those things you don't need to worry about. If you want to, we can talk about it. But as far as what the gospel is, that is your responsibility for you to protect that according to the word of God, so that if an apostle comes to you and preaches something different, you can say, no. If an angel of God comes to you and preaches something different, you can say, no. That is not the gospel. It's why a part of our membership process, the first question I ask you is, what is the gospel? I want all of you, if you're a Christian, if you're a member of the church, to know what the gospel is because the power and value of the gospel is in the gospel itself as it's communicated from the word of God and not in the person who preaches it. To some degree, I have to say, don't trust me because I'm me. Check the gospel always. Always, 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 always. Good. Fourth thing. When we're living in our Christian lives, 
We have an eye towards looking for God's approval and not man's approval. And we'll just pass this through. It's, it'll be a short little one as we talk about it. The Apostle Paul basically is saying, listen, um, if I was after making people happy, we wouldn't be having this discussion. The gospel is fundamentally offensive. I'm going to offend you when I preach it. When you come and say, I've been a very good person, and I say, no, you haven't. That's offensive. But as a minister of the gospel, I have to say that. And when you're sitting across the, the water cooler of somebody else, you're sitting in a workroom having lunch, and they say, well, I think everything's fine and everybody's going to make it to God. And you say, well, no, actually, I don't think that that's true. That's offensive. We're not after the approval of people. We have found our approval in the Lord God and we have our eyes towards him and what we preach and what we say. I think if you gave me about three months, I could probably triple to quadruple the size of this church if I started preaching an altered and false gospel. Because I know what the itching ears of southernish folk want to hear when it comes to Christianity. And instead, I want to offend you away from that for the sake of your souls. And you see the Apostle Paul here. And so if you've never offended somebody with the gospel, um, let me suggest to you, um, maybe you don't know it, or at least maybe you're not articulating it to somebody else. And you just expect to offend people for the gospel. And just for the gospel. I mean, if you're just a regular old jerk, like you need to repent of that and just be a nicer person. Um, if you're just not nice to be around, just deal with that with the Lord and tell everybody you're sorry. Um, but if you're preaching the truth of God and that offends somebody, then that's something you need to be okay with because your eyes are on the Lord and not the approval of other people. So, that's what Paul lays out, and you can see as Galatians extends forward where he's going to go, he's going to get into things like, how can we tell by our religious, the things that we do, how can we tell if they're good things or bad things? If you're excited about reading the Bible, how can you tell that that's a good thing, or are you trusting in your Bible reading for your right standing with God? If you're really excited about uh, an emotional experience you had on a retreat, is that a really good thing? Or did you just have a really great meal and you're working yourself up because you're away for a weekend in the mountains? How can you tell of what a life of faith truly looks like? How can you tell and even how can you start chart a life that heads towards a focus on God and his glory? We hope Galatians will serve for you as both a thermostat and a thermometer. Thermometer tells you what the temperature is, cold or hot. A thermostat affects it. And so I hope as we go through, say, this is where I am, and this is the direction I'd like to be in. So let me resolve a little tension before we, um, we close this morning. You might be thinking, especially with some of the names that I've thrown out, um, that just sounds mean. You might be wondering, is Christianity close-minded? Um, I guess somebody else can only decide if I'm being mean. Um, as far as closed-minded, yes, we kind of are closed-minded. Um, we're very specific about people's souls. If somebody comes in and says, I have this great new cure for cancer. I stand on my head for an hour every day, and I've decided to forego chemo and radiation. I would say, that's dumb. Go to your doctor. Take chemo and radiation. We know how you get healthy. And so I don't think it's nice to someone to tell them that standing on their head will cure their cancer. I think the nicest thing I can do is say, don't do that. If somebody is an alcoholic and they want to persist in their alcoholism, I don't think it's nice to say to them, you don't have a problem, don't worry about it, I'm sure you have it under control. I think the nice thing to do is to come and say, you have a problem, let me get you help. 
It makes sense in other areas of our life, but when it comes to spirituality, we tend to think that, oh, well, I need to play nice, I need to be nice. What we see here is the gospel is that important. It is important enough to nicely offend someone. We are even more closed-minded as Christians about the gospel than we are about morality and ethics. And I, I, I need you to think through this. I want you to be moral and ethical people, but we have a lot in common with Islam just on the scale of, um, of ethics and morality, at least in America. So in terms of preserving a family union, unit, not liking divorce, um, even the way we handle finances and matters of life, all these different things, there's crossover between us and Mormonism. I mean, between us and, um, and Islam, actually, between us and Mormonism as well. Just speaking morally. But when it comes to how you're right with God, we are very specific, and we are the only way to find salvation in the Lord Jesus. And I think that I am most loving when I'm articulating that. And you see that here in, in this particular passage. Second tension point you might have, and I return back to where I was. You might have thought, listen, I became saved, and so now I don't need to worry about that. There's the other things I need to do. Your core responsibility as a Christian from the day that you're converted forward is to protect, relish, enjoy, meditate on, and grow in your knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. For some of you, it's been a long time since you've considered that. For some of you, you keep wondering when Joe's going to get past that. He's been saying that for five years. When is he going to move on to something else? You look at passages like this, the gospel is at the core of who we are. And let me tell you why. Because the gospel isn't just a, a label on the back of your shirt that says you're a Christian. You know, God has his ownership on you. If you get lost, somebody knows where to return you to. When you were united to Jesus, he changed your identity. He told you how much you were loved. When the world tells you you're not enough, he has told you, I have loved you and I have lavished my grace on you and I have saved you not because of your failures or your successes, but I have saved you to be one of my dear beloved. And now your identity is secure in that. So if anybody comes to you and says, you're not enough, you're an awful person, you could say, that might be true, but Jesus loves me. And that has changed me as a person. The gospel protects that. So if I start saying to you, yeah, you're mostly Christian, but you could feel a lot better about yourself if you started doing some additional things. Now some of your identity is tied to your own works that you can either fulfill or not. And human tendency is, the more you walk down that road, the more you'll want to do that. And so, yes, well, all of us are Christians, but I mean, if you're doing Bible memory, obviously you're like the Navy SEAL of Christians. It's an identity issue. And Bible memory is great. I would love for you to memorize the whole Bible. But I don't want that to affect your identity and who you are. And the gospel preserves that for you. So I will offend whoever so that your identity will be secure in what Christ has done for you. You'll be secure as a worshiper of the Lord Jesus and not yourself. You see, your story is now God's story. What we tend to think is, how is my story going to end? I'm the hero of my own story, and I've got some, some trials coming my way, and if I play the little clip trailer on YouTube of my life, you know, it's not finished yet, but, you know, the crescendo swelling, 
I know something's about to happen. I'm going to really come through in the clutch and everything's going to end up fine. You, you come to Christ and now you're a part of God's story. Like you haven't even visited your YouTube page in a long time. You just keep going to God's page and you keep seeing what Jesus has done. And you look at the wall in Jesus' trophy room and there you are, a trophy on the wall of what Christ has accomplished and you wouldn't want to be anywhere else because your story isn't about you becoming great. It's about the Lord Jesus becoming great and we have become a people who have been incredibly freed by that. If that sounds horrible to you, don't be a Christian. But if that sounds great to you, of finally being freed from your own story, to revel in his story and to rejoice in what he's done, to not live your life so analytically paralyzed, wondering if you'll make the right decision or how things will turn out or what's coming this week and who's going to talk to you and what about... If you could take a deep breath, you can know the story is already finished. Christ has been triumphant. History is playing itself out, but we know the end. And if you're a Christian, you're a part of that story. What can separate you from that story? Can life, death, can sword, can height or depth or ruler? Nothing can separate us from the, Lord God, from the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful story and it is freeing. And the minute you alter the gospel, you lose it. You lose it. And I want it for you. I want it so desperately for you. And so we are going to people, people who protect the gospel because we love the Lord and we have found ourselves in him and we don't want to be anywhere else and we want his name to be great. And so in summary, what I'd like you to think about some things, especially if you're a list writer, renew your, renew your commitment to prize Jesus above all things. It, it, it sounds so pedantic. It sounds so childish. Um, it can become just lingo. You have to love and enjoy the basic gospel. You have to commit yourself, no matter how silly it seems, to return again to what it means for you to be a Christian. Karl Barth, who's a famous theologian, um, some of his theology is okay, some of it's not good, but he was known as a famous theologian, and he was at a lecture, and somebody asked him, um, what is the most profound thing you've ever learned in all of your theological study? And, um, and he said... Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was a great response. And I hope that you would revel in that as well. So that's number one. Number two, review your gospel sources and possibly make changes. I have a feeling there are some places that you're exposed to false gospel that you don't even know it, and you may start to see it. I just urge you to start to pay attention. What are, what are apparent Christian or Christian authorities in your life saying is the way to happiness or saying how do you enter into and how do you continue into Christian happiness and wholeness? How much do they try and point you towards Jesus and how much do they point you towards yourself? Review your gospel sources. Number three of five, repent of your tendency to believe false gospels. All of us do. All of us will. There's a point where we come and we're honest towards the Lord. There are some things about me, God, that make me extremely susceptible to believing false gospels. And I am so wrong, and I so need your help. I'm so glad you've been gracious to me, not just to get me in through Christ, but to keep me and to bear with me and to be so patient with me and to love me when I'm often trying to believe gospels that make me great and not you great, Lord. I hope you live a life of repentance, fourth of five, that you would return to living a life based on faith. 
that word faith is at the core of the Christian life. Faith. A belief that God is who he says he is. If you could reboot yourself, if you could control-alt-delete, if you could press the little um, force-quit on your brain and restart things in your Christian life, and you could just ask myself, is the core of who I am a belief in who Jesus is? How would your life change? That's what faith is. It's believing that life is fundamentally different than what everybody thinks. It's about the Lord Christ. And lastly, that you would rejoice in Jesus and what he's done for you. Worship should be a great sigh of relief to you. All week long, we are given messages that we need to be by ourselves and look out for ourselves. And when we come into worship, especially corporate worship, we stand and sing it's finally a chance for all of us to rejoice and to fix our eyes on Jesus and not ourselves and to be so thrilled with him. Worship is your escape valve. It's not a straitjacket. It's not a list of things we try and do. Worship is finally stepping into, getting a glimpse of an appetizer of true gospel living and the eternity the Lord has for us. We can finally be done with this sin that so easily entangles us and instead place our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, the one who invites you to himself this morning. Let me pray for us, and then let's sing. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel of truth. We pray, Lord, that with humility and strength, with boldness and a willingness to give offense, that we would protect the gospel for ourselves and that we would communicate it to others that many would believe protect Christ's covenant, protect us, protect our parents and our spouses and our children from false gospels, from the creeping of works righteousness, we would be infatuated with your son. But all of these things are a work that, we have, that you have to do. And so we place our faith in you as the one who will bring it all about. We work out our faith with fear and trembling, Father, knowing that it is you who works in us to will and to do of your own good pleasure. Work for your pleasure, Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand and respond in song, singing, Jesus, I my cross have taken.